0: Thank you for listening to the Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons podcast.
1: Welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. Q is about conversation. If we're
0: really concerned about ending poverty, we've got to be more concerned about creating justice. Our cultural products as Christians need to both defy and resonate with the culture.
2: God's doing amazing things. His church is expanding. His church is growing. It's not what's the purpose of my life. It's what is the purpose that's been assigned.
1: Stay curious. Think well, advance good. This is Q.
2: That's how you know if you objectify something or someone. It's if you say this is not the end goal, the actual relationship with the person. If you say the person is just a bridge to get what I truly want, that's when it becomes a problem.
0: Welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. Gabe is off again this week getting ready for Q 2019, the annual Q conference in Nashville, just over a week away, April 24th through the 26th. Remember, you can find all the details plus get your tickets at Qideas.org. I'm Paul Perot from Faith Radio, and recently at Qideas.org, Gabe and the team asked the question How do we build environments committed to the flourishing of all women? One of the largest issues that works against women's flourishing is sexual exploitation, and that's the focus of today's show. First, thanks to the Internet, pornography is widely available and viewed by hundreds of millions daily. How does that affect women? Lisa L. Thompson, Vice President of Policy and Research for the National Center for Sexual Exploitation, spoke at last year's Q Conference. Her talk was called Understanding Sexual Exploitation.
1: Hugh Hefner world-famous for popularizing pornography, for creating a playboy mode of masculinity, for hosting legendary parties attended by Hollywood celebrities like Bill Cosby and Roman Polanski, and of course, for building an empire which styled the sexual objectification of women as entertainment for men. Now, for some of you who are here today, Hugh Hefner and his publication Playboy may have been your first introduction to the world of pornography. But for many others of you, I imagine that that introduction may have came as a result of stumbling into the vast world of internet pornography. But whatever the case, please understand that it was Hefner who paved the way. It was Hefner who normalized, who mainstreamed female nudity, and paved the way for the massive amount of pornography that permeates the internet today. Now when Hefner died, he was eulogized with words like maverick, mogul, icon, pioneer, even legend. This pornographer and pimp was celebrated as a champion of civil rights, of freedom of speech, and sexual freedom. Hugh Hefner a man who said he'd be happy to see his own daughter in the pages of his magazine. Harvey Weinstein, famous producer of arthouse films, co-founder of the independent studio Miramax, a star maker. Of course, we all know what's happened since October, how Harvey Weinstein was accused of having sexually harassed numerous actresses and even engaging in sexual assault. And of course, that set off a a really seismic wave across the country that we now refer to as the Weinstein effect. As Countless women and some men came forward and shared their stories of Me Too, and in some instances, Church Too. And as a result, suddenly, men were being held accountable for their sexual behavior. Sexual behaviors which were exemplified in the lifestyle of Hugh Hefner, and, of course, which he taught generations of men with issue after issue of Playboy. This is what we call irony. Weinstein and the others like him are products of the widely proclaimed and deeply ingrained Playboy philosophy. That philosophy is a dogma of male sexual entitlement. It dissects women but also children and men from their humanity, and slices them into body parts to be consumed by the masses. It robs sexuality of its emotional intimacy, of its mutuality of pleasure. At its heart, it teaches a sexuality that is detached, disengaged, predatory, and even pathological. This is Michael Bussard. How do you think pornography came into his life? For Michael, it began when he discovered his stepfather's stash of Playboy magazines at age seven. When his mom found out, of course, she was concerned, and so she went to her husband, to Harold, and asked Harold to have a talk with her son. That talk involved Harold taking Michael to a bedroom and shutting the door. And that's when the years of sexual abuse and rape began. Events set in motion by pornography and by the man who produced it. There are thousands upon thousands of Michael Bussards in our country today. Boys and girls whose sexual abuse was launched by people who use pornography as a gateway to sexual abuse. Pornography is a potent teacher. But what's the lesson? Well, there are more than a hundred studies which show that pornography is both correlated with and a cause of a wide range of violent behaviors. There are more than 50 studies which strongly connect pornography with sexual violence. But nevertheless, people consume pornography at a rate today that I think would even boggle the mind of Hugh Hefner. He was wildly successful. I work for the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. We work to address the full web of sexual exploitation. We are keenly aware of how these forms of sexual exploitation intersect, how they overlap, reinforce, and fuel one another. In fact, in our experience, Most forms of sexual abuse and exploitation have the thread of pornography running through them. In fact, I have a friend who's a psychotherapist at an Ivy League school for more than 30 years. She's treated people who were victims of sexual exploitation and abuse and men who were sex offenders. And she recently told me how that she realized when she was 10 years into her practice, how she had not had a single case of sexual violence that did not involve pornography. Now, of course, not everybody who looks at pornography goes on to sexually harass people or to become a child predator or a rapist, but everyone needs to ask him or herself a few questions. Questions like, has pornography made me a better person? Does it make me a more sensitive, giving and loving sexual partner? How has it changed my attitudes and how I relate to other people? And for those of you who don't use pornography, ask yourself, how has pornography impacted my life and the the lives of those that I love? And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we'll recognize that pornography is not a force for human flourishing. It's deeply benevolent. The evangelists of pornography have gone around the world. They've made many disciples. And why not? They had a very powerful prophet Thank you.
0: That was Lisa L. Thompson. We did have to edit her talk for length, so the full talk is available at qideas.org. Just search for Lisa L. Thompson. And yes, while pornography and sexual exploitation are huge problems, there is a deeper reality that feeds them, and other issues where we exploit one another. Let's explore that idea now with Jefferson Bethke. Interestingly, he spoke a few years ago at the Kew Women's Conference, a guy in front of an audience of women talking about objectification and exploitation. And yes, while that was a bit awkward for him, he did offer some interesting insights.
2: There was a journalist who actually does a lot of her work on kind of stuff of this nature. And she was uh, writing like a three, four week expose on the objectification of women. And just randomly, one of those nights, her and her husband got kind of invited to a dinner party. She had to work late. They live in Manhattan. And so it was, uh, they had to bring a dessert. That was their job for the dinner party. So the husband's job was to make it, put it together, and then basically, you know, walk down the street, hop on the subway, hop on the bus and get it to the party. And, um, he said he, he, he made the cake and he got it all ready and then he's walking out the door and he basically said instantly, the minute he started walking by different people, it was just very awkward. Like they were staring, some of them were kind of ogling, some of them were salivating because it was just an uncovered cake that was getting ready to basically be served at the party. And he just said he hated it. It was like 45 minutes and he finally got to the party and he basically just said, is, is this what it's like to be a woman? Being stared at, having a gaze on you? I remember reading that story and thinking, yeah, the reason maybe we don't talk about this one so much is exactly like a story like that where... Men don't even really realize it. And so it's when you have only half the population talking about something, I think it's an uphill battle from the beginning. And so I just thought that was an interesting anecdote. And, and so also moral of the story, if you want your husband or boyfriend to know what it's like, give him a dessert, send him out the door. But... Um, <laughs> The truth of the matter is there's a crazy amount of research on this topic. Um, I came across a study that basically said um, in the brain of most men, the very same part that registers a screwdriver or a hammer or any type of inanimate object that is a tool is the same part of the brain that usually registers when they see a woman. I read another one that was crazy where it basically said that most men are seen both by, by both men and women. This one was interesting. Uh, like, uh, pictures of men were putting, put up on the screen, and basically men and women, the part of their brain that is global processing, I mean it's the, it's the thing in your brain when you want to see a big picture, right? So like a house, like you see the house, that's a big picture, but local processing would be if you just see the door. You guys tracking with me? Nine times out of ten, basically, the, the men were seen, the part in the brain that registered when you saw a man was global processing, but when you saw a woman, it was local processing, and this was by men and women, which is interesting, so that even women kind of, basically women are being pieced and pulled apart when they're seen. They're seen as objects and different parts, not as actual humans. And that's a huge, huge, deep problem. And so what I really want to talk about is the problem behind the problem and then also what's at stake. So that's really what I'm going to spend the rest of my time on is the problem behind the problem and then what's at stake when we actually objectify. What we don't realize is that objectification, I think, is like there in the beginning. And another way I like to say it is commodification. Right where you're turning someone into a thing to use, abuse, exploit, get money from, pleasure from, whatever. I think that's the thing, or the response, or kind of the primary vehicle that sin has entered into from the very first chapter. Sin enters into the world, Genesis three. So what I'm trying to say is, objectification of women, I think, is just a smaller problem of the commodification of humans. If you guys are with me, and I think sin is that problem. There's this once the minute Shalom broke, the minute kind of the the the, it all working how it's supposed to be working. When the minute that kind of fractured was the minute that now people were no longer people, they were things. And people were no longer people, they're competition. And that's really, I think, the base fundamental heart of all these different things. That's why we have sweatshops, right? That's why we have pornography. It's why we have reality TV. I mean, like, those people are not people. Those people are things for our entertainment. We're getting The, the, the companies are getting money off of exploiting those people. So people are now products from the very beginning. Right Genesis three on people are things, commodities, products, and things of that nature. So I think the solution is a, not a full swing out of the objectification of one thing but out of the objectification or commodification of all things and that 's really what I want to chat about, and another way to put it which you see in the, the, the book after Genesis, Exodus, is I think we have to remove ourselves from the culture of Pharaoh and enter into the culture of Yahweh. And what I mean by that is when you look at Exodus, it's a really, really fascinating narrative and juxtaposition. So there's Pharaoh, you have this ruthless taskmaster, and Pharaoh's economy is basically based on people as things, right? Like Israel, his entire workforce was people that he said are not people. They're secondary, they're subhuman, they're second class, and we're going to use them to get what we truly want. Which, by the way, that's how you know if you objectify something or someone. It's if you say this is not the end goal, the actual relationship with the person. If you say the person is just a bridge to get what I truly want, that's when it becomes a problem. And so Pharaoh was the king of that. He was the king of doing that to a lot of people. Everyone was a commodity. Everyone was an object. They're just things to squeeze life out of. And I think we do the same. We abuse, we exploit, we try to get anything we can out of people, pleasure, power, money, whatever it is. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is that? And so I think the real problem is not, in particular, objectification of women. I think, again, like I've already said, in general, it's the commodification of humans. So the battle is removing from the culture of Pharaoh and going and entering into the culture of Yahweh. What do I mean by that? When you look at Exodus, you see this crazy juxtaposition. So you have Pharaoh, And he's basically this king that says, make more bricks, make more bricks, make more bricks. And he keeps saying it with less, with less, with less. We're going to get as much out of you without giving to you, giving to you least as possible. So he's kind of stretching their humanness. He's extorting them, he's exploiting them, right? He says, make more bricks, which I think, The spirit of Pharaoh is still around today, right? Look this way, act this way, do this thing. I even put in here specifically with women, with with talking with my wife, I feel like it's don't be fat, but don't be too skinny. Be pretty, but don't be too sexy. Don't be a doormat, but don't be overbearing. The demands of our culture, which I think are a Pharaoh culture, are endless. You cannot please Pharaoh. You can't. If you try to stay on that road, it'll never end and you cannot please him and he has endless demands. They're absolutely crushing. So we have to ask what kind of culture are we creating. Every time a guy looks at a girl in a lustful way, he's colluding again with the powers of Pharaoh. Every time a girl dresses in a way that dehumanizes herself and says, I'm not a human, I'm an object, she is colluding with the power of Pharaoh. Anytime we tell someone their value is in what they produce, how much they make, where they came from, or whatever it is, again, that is colluding with the powers that be, which I like to call Pharaoh in this narrative. But Yahweh is completely different. You look at the actual scriptures, you look at Exodus when God reveals himself as Yahweh to them, he's very, very different. He doesn't want to take value, he actually wants to give value. He doesn't want to take it, he wants to give it, and the answer, I think, of objectification is relationship. You ever thought about that? So if you go back to the garden, right, the thing they had perfectly was relationship. They had perfect covenantal relationship with God and with others. There was a, a, a freedom about it, there was a lot of, there was a freeness about it, and they had that unity or that covenant love. The minute sin enters the world, relationships break. When you truly see someone in a deep covenantal relationship, and you know them, and you love them, and you see all that they are, and they have a weight about them, you cannot objectify them. You have to dehumanize someone first to objectify them second. And so Yahweh says, no, no, I want to put the relationship back into the equation. I want to put that covenant back into the equation. And everything about how uh, uh, Yahweh set up the world to work after he pulls them out of Exodus, out of uh, um, um, Egypt, is very interesting. I think a lot of times we think the Ten Commandments are that cool felt board thing on Sunday school. And I think, at least I thought, they kind of uh, were just produced in a vacuum. Like it was just kind of like there, but it really had no connection point or no reason to be there. When you actually think about Ten Commandments, it's actually a subversive way to live in juxtaposition with where they just came from. You guys with me? It was actually saying, no, 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 I am not like those other gods. That, that's the very first command, is it not? The very first command of the Ten Commandments is, have no other gods before me. What's Yahweh trying to say there? He's trying to say, I am not like where you just came from. Don't think I am. I am not like where I just came from. And also think about them too. They were there for hundreds of years they don't know how to form a society. They don't know fully what God is like. They've maybe heard about him in the promises or around the campfire or whatever it is, right, through their ancestors, but they don't know what he's like. So he enters into their story and says, I am not like what you just came from. I don't use, I don't abuse, I don't exploit, I give value, I give love, and I give covenant. So you think about the juxtaposition. Yahweh, Or Pharaoh gives no rest. Yahweh says, observe the Sabbath. Pharaoh says, what you produce defines you. Yahweh says, no, 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 who you are, not what you do, defines you. Pharaoh says, if someone isn't useful to me, throw them away because they don't give me any value. Yahweh says, if you don't take care of the alien, the orphan, and the widow, and the least useful according to a worldly standard, then you actually stand condemned. That's very different. That's polar opposite of what we actually see that they just came out of. So he's giving them a new way to live, a new way to be human, and we still have that invitation today. We still have that invitation to come into that today. And so the reason I use that example is because I think, even acknowledging the awkwardness in the beginning, we get stuck in the weeds a little bit of like, whose fault is it with the objectification of women? Like, is it the guy's fault that they're just objectifying a ton? Which yes, I think it is. But, or is it the women's fault for how they dress or whatever it is? No, no. I think it's the problem behind the problem is it's what culture are we all creating with our lives? Because we get so stuck down here. And I've seen that argument for like five years on the blogosphere of it's the guy's fault. It's the girl's fault, blah, blah, blah. Right. But really it's no, 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 Let's go up here and say, what's the big picture? What culture are we creating, and what culture are we kind of submitting to? And we all have something to do with that. And so that's what I think it's really about. And so that's the issue in our society, and then that's the problem behind the problem. But now I want to kind of ask, what's at stake? Why is objectification, commodification, such a big deal? I think it's a huge deal because the thing that's at stake is our actual humanness. The very thing that makes us human. I know that's a weird way to put it, but I think that's actually what's at stake. Because the thing that makes us human, according to scripture, is the image of God. Which means we are reflecting something. God created us to reflect him. That's what makes us human. So when you are not reflecting him, and again, you're entering into the culture of Pharaoh, making everyone objects, etc., whatever it is, you're actually losing the image. Right? Because if you're not reflecting him then you're actually not reflecting the image of God, which is the very thing that makes you human. You're reflecting something else. I think, actually, when you worship something else outside of Yahweh, I think it actually, all the way down the road to the logical conclusion, kind of makes you subhuman or almost animalistic in some degree, because that is actually the image of God being pulled off you slowly but surely. Now, I think in this life, let me clarify, that you, you can scratch all you want. You cannot fully scratch the image of God off you. You cannot, but I do believe that's exactly what hell is. You say, I don't want your image on me anymore. He says, okay, fully removed. That sounds like a terrifying place. Anyone else? Like, like what does that even mean to have the humanness fully pulled off of you? I don't know, but I don't want to go there. Anyone else? And that's what I think is at stake is that our very humanness is at stake. It's crumbling, and we are losing what it actually means to be human. Let me illustrate this with one quick point. Um, I kind of nerd out on weird books and archaeology and all that stuff, and I was reading a book on archaeology that found a pattern excavating a lot of old empires, so you can look at kind of uh, Rome or Persia or whatever it is, and a pattern they found is that the head kind of king or leader of those places, they rarely are finding statues in the capital city. Are you guys tracking with me? So like Caesar, like they rarely find a Caesar statue in Rome where they find him all the time on statues is on the outer skirts, most farther farthest points of the colonies, right? The places where they're going out and kind of uh, trying to say, this is who's king and this is who's in charge. And I thought that was really interesting because you don't need the image in the, in the capital, right? Because you have the king himself. And so the, the, the statues are a way of going out on the, outermost parts and saying, this is who's in charge, this is who's king, you need to follow him. That's what I think it means to be an image bearer. That's what I think it means to be an image bearer, is we're sent out into the world, right, we're supposed to say, this is who's king, this, this is who's in charge. Now, with the relevance with this talk, think about if uh, that city or that colony that had that statue kind of got taken over by something else, or no longer had the kingship or lordship of Rome over it, Rome would no longer be maintenancing that statue, Rome would no longer be making sure that it's clean and polished and everything of that nature. And so you can begin to get the picture that it would basically just be left be. And sooner. Then later, it would just start to crumble. It would just start to decay. It would just literally start to fall apart. That's what I think it means again to be an image bearer of God. That when you say, I don't wanna live under your rule and your reign anymore, he says, okay, and your humanness actually starts to crumble. So that's what's at stake is the very thing that Jesus called us into, what it means to be truly human. And we objectify, and when we commodify, we totally put ourselves in the other camp. And that's a very dangerous road that I don't wanna go on. And you see the, the claim from the prophets too, right? The prophets say in uh, Psalm 115, you see in Isaiah, they say, what you worship, you actually become like. The psalmist is kind of being sarcastic in the sense of like, yeah, you worship a golden thing. You worship something made out of wood and something out of, something out of silver. When's the last time that forgave you? When's the last time that loved you? When's the last time that actually did anything for you? In fact, it literally is just dormant and dead and it just sits there because it's a piece of wood. But if you worship that thing, you actually become like that thing. Why? Because you're starting to bear that image. You start to objectify yourself. And that's the dark side of objectification we don't talk about. That yes, we might objectify other people, but when you actually start to live that life, you become the object. You actually start to lose that humanness. You actually start to become, like if you treat other people like things, you start to lose what it means to be human and you become a thing. That's a real dangerous dark side of the coin, I think. And so, That's what we have to sit in. That's what we have to wrestle in, is that's what's at stake. But to end, I really just want to talk about also the fact that this can show up in more dangerous and subtle ways in religious circles. This can show up in a lot more dangerous and subtle ways when you get into a religious environment. Why? Well, I think because a lot of times we don't realize that sometimes our legalistic, fundamentalist, modesty culture is actually just objectifying women just as much but it's just the other side of the coin. Now, let me talk about that real quick before I just got some eyes that I'm about to get stoned. But anyways, okay. <laughs> what we don't realize is I've heard stories and seen stories of you know, girls being pulled out into the hallway um, and made to get on their knees and then they get a ruler next to their skirt and if it's like a centimeter or something too short, well, then they get sent to the principal's office or something of that nature. I've heard of girls dressed perfectly fine And they're even actually within rules, but they've been kicked out of dances because they were making the men stumble, classic phrase, right? But what we don't realize is it's objectifying still, but just in a different way. I mean, like the first example, like you you see, you're turning the woman into this object that is not a person, but it's just a temptress inherently to men. It's an object just that's kind of like inherently evil towards the men. They're going to make the men stumble. And that's such, so far from the truth and such a lie. And this actually goes back to some of the earliest church fathers. to Tertullian, I can barely even say that, sorry. Um, he wasn't even known, I think, third or fourth century for even basically saying that since sin came through Eve, now the woman is the primary vehicle for Satan's deceit and lies. That sounds like heresy. Anyone else? right? And that's, but, but we've struggled with it for like 1600 years. And that's why it's such a pervasive cloud over us as we have to fight back against that. Now, let me, let me just say this. I even put it in, in my, my notes. The female body is not an inherent temptation. Okay. The female and the male body, let's just say the body is glorious. The body is a crowning act of God's creation. We don't need to change the body. We need to change our eyes. There's a big difference there's a big difference. And so see, the culture kind of can exploit the female body, but then Christian culture can say, no, just hide the female body or whatever it is. What it really comes down to, again, is what we talked about in the beginning, is what image are you reflecting? Dress, act, live in a certain way where you're bearing the image of what it means to be human and pointing to something greater than yourself. That's what it comes down to for all of us. If you truly know who you are, you won't objectify, right? If you truly know your, because I think objectification and commodification comes from a place of you not knowing who you are. If you know who you are, you'll stop grasping and grabbing for all these different things, right? Notice the temptation of Jesus. Jesus, uh, uh, Satan says, if you are the son of God, do this, do this, do this. Next one. If you are the son of God, do this, do this, or say this, right? And how does Jesus respond? What did he just hear a chapter before in that story? He heard he was the son of God from his father, literally verses before. So he says, I don't need to grasp. I don't need to grab because I already know that I am. And that's what it comes down to. When you truly know who you are, that's what it means to live under the culture of Yahweh, to know who you are, and then you can live properly. Thank you.
0: That was Jefferson Bethke on Q Ideas with Gabe Lines. It was interesting how he went beyond just an issue, such as pornography, and delved into our heart issues. Again, that's what Gabe and the team at Q Ideas seeks to do, to stay curious, to think well, and advance good. Remember, most of the talks you hear on Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons come from the annual Q Conference. Q 2019 is happening in Nashville in a week and a half. More information about the conference, as well as videos of past talks, can be found at qideas.org. That's our show for this weekend. For Gabe, I'm Paul Perot. hoping you join us next week for Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. This show is made possible in partnership with Faith Radio and Northwestern Media. Thank you for listening to the Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make your gift now at MyFaithRadio.com. To avoid missing future editions of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons, subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or on your podcast player. And thank you for sharing this audio link with a friend and growing the impact of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons.